Hey, Joseph, we got Sam on the line here. What do you want to ask him? One of the things that I want to ask you is, what are some tips that you can give me for raising capital for a deal? Fundraising to me, and the, certainly the equity side for multi, Joseph, uh, Brian, had not been as difficult as I anticipated. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is in the past two, three years, uh, multifamily has been hot. But mm-hmm. even now, you know, we're, we closed a deal early this year. I'm closing a deal this month. The equity piece actually has been good. We're often oversubscribed. A lot of it's because we put in a lot of our own money. We put in low six figures, sometimes seven figures into a deal. And I'm not the smartest kid in the block, but I think investors and friends know that I'm not dumb. So mm-hmm. if I put in a large amount of money and often we take the common, we don't take the prep. So we're last in line to get paid. A lot of times it signals to mm-hmm. investors that we've done our homework, we're putting our skin in the game. And so we're able to attract good investors. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. We got two amazing people on the line with us today. As our experienced investor today, we got San Ng and as our aspiring investor, Joseph Harris. Gentlemen, welcome to the show today. Hey, Brian. Hey, Joseph. Great to be here. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know, Joseph, it's been a long time coming. We've been trying to get you on a couple episodes, so glad to finally make the timeline work out for us. That said, as is tradition, our experienced investor is up to the plate first. So, San, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Okay. Well, I gave myself, uh, I made up a name for myself. I call myself an investorpreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, version 1.0, I was an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, started a half a dozen company, raised uh, almost $180 million, uh, mainly in technology mm-hmm. and consumer, um, mostly in Asia and North America. Um, so that's the entrepreneur piece. Uh, second piece is the investor uh, have um, managed money professionally in terms mm-hmm. of venture capital, blockchain, private mm-hmm. equity, as well as, of course, real estate as 2.0. That 2.0 is mainly managing other people's money all those my funds. And then currently I'm living my 3.0, which hopefully is the forever 3.0, which is managing my own and family's money, deploying my own capital using the Skycan Capital platform. Nice. Hopefully I, I get to, to point to where I'm 3.0 as well. That's the ultimate goal. Now, I thought you'd be a 6.0 by now, Brian. Yeah, yeah, right. I, uh, I guess 1.0 for me was was a different story. I'm I'm, I'm living my 2.0 right now, but uh, definitely want to get there. Great, so. great, great. Now, something I noticed you you have a book that you you co-authored, the Ten Commandments of Investing. Tell us a little bit, bit about the book, how it came about, and and really why you guys wrote it. It's a book, twelve years, maybe even thirteen years of the making. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned 1.0, 2.0. So throughout my life, I've been in business investing and an entrepreneur. When I turned 45, I had been living almost 20 years in Shanghai with my family. I decided to take five years off. Essentially, I took a five-year sabbatical. You can call it a midlife crisis, but I, I like to think of it as five-year break. 
to really sort of think about the next stages and also think about how I would want to invest my time and money. Mm-hmm. Spent quite a bit of time reading and also reviewing notes from the past decade of working with a number of investors and initially came up with a book called the Investor's Bible. Mm-hmm. Do you, Joseph, uh, Brian, do you guys, have you guys, you guys remember Cliff Notes from back in high school and college? <laughs> yes, yeah, I so do. We, yes, yes, I sir, do. Yes, sir. We, yeah. Okay. So we, uh, my brother Edmund and I, he was to see, he was a CEO of an investment bank, a listed company in Hong Kong. So he and I spent about 10 years really uh, working with some amazing investors uh, mm-hmm. and also studying. And we essentially did a two or three page summary about each investor, Buffett, Dalio, all over. And that became the Investor's Bible. Mm-hmm. And we were going to publish that book during uh, pre-COVID. But uh, when COVID came, my daughter, Ia, which you can see in the backdrop, and my nephew, Tim, read the book. And they said, this is great content, but you're never going to sell a book. Mm-hmm. So what, what really what happened was the book was very thick and technical. Uh, it was useful. So we spent uh, the next uh, year or so rewriting the book, uh, which became the Ten Commandments of, the, uh, of Investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really Stan or E or Tim's commandments. It's really the Ten Commandments that the world's greatest investment wizards use, whether they invest in real estate or blockchain or technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made them successful. And so we published that book a year and year and a half ago. And because my daughter and my nephew made it kind of fun to read mm-hmm. and memorable stories and, and anecdotes, we end up hitting the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller, which has nice. been fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And, and I'm promoting the book. Uh, I don't like to promote, but I'm promoting the book because all the proceeds that we do generate from the book, uh, Brian, we donate to charities. Mm-hmm. Uh, including NGOs or schools that promote financial literacy and, right. and teach teach investing. So it's a nonprofit for us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, if you're listening and you're interested in the book, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, on, looks like it's, I know it's at least on Amazon. I'll put the link to Amazon in the show notes so anybody can grab it. And just remember any of the proceeds go to charitable organizations. So I love that you're doing that, by the way, the, the charitable organization piece. But yeah, it's sold everywhere. It's, it's, uh, it's, in, it's in Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. It's in some bookstores. Uh, we just found a publisher and later this year, we'll actually be translating to Portuguese as well. Hmm. And we're still looking for uh, Chinese, Korean and Spanish, okay. hopefully next year. All right. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll pick up the Portuguese version too. So that's uh, <laughs> a fun one. Yeah, my my last job in, in the Marine Corps, I was uh, an international relations officer, and the military actually sent me to learn Portuguese. So I spent six months uh, getting paid to learn to speak Portuguese, which is pretty awesome. But that's uh, great. Yeah, so don't think I could translate a book yet, but uh, I, I can definitely read a book in, in Portuguese. So, well, really cool. I, I really appreciate that, and you know, for anybody listening. Pick yourself up a copy, you know, 10 Commandments of Investing. Sounds like it's right up my alley. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, what, what I like to call your big burning why. You know, what's what's your motivation? What's your why for, for doing what you do? There's a Japanese phrase called ikigai. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you've heard of that. I guess the French translation would be rasan d'etre. In English, is reason for being. So what, what essentially is the why. Okay. And so ikigai is a term from Okinawa, Japan. And you probably know Okinawa is one of the three blue zones in the world where they have the most centenarians, people that live the longest. And that. so when they when they conduct the interviews, they ask, they try to figure out why people live long. And one of the big reasons that Okinawa and Japanese, they all have an ikigai, they have a why. Mm-hmm. So and I actually 
have a tattoo. That's the uh, that's nice. the ikigai symbol. And you, if you get closer, there's two birds, myself and, and the mom, mm-hmm. and my three daughters flying. With, and essentially, that that shows my ikigai is is a family and my daughter. So so my why uh, my mission has been to teach my kids. I want to support my kids to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. They want to be a doctor, great. They want to volunteer for the Peach Corps, great. If they want to be an artist, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But especially as daughters, I've been really focused on getting my all my kids financially literate and to to be financially free, aggressively ambitiously by the age of 21. I got a 16, I got a 17, and a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 19-year-old is closing her first real estate deal to help pay for her first year of college. So that's really my big why is Mm -hmm. I'm learning real estate. I'm learning investing is how to motivate and pass on some of these skills and knowledge to the kids so that they they, they can also acquire this sooner than later. All right. I love it. I love it. And and incidentally, I did spend a little bit of time in Okinawa. It's it's been, gosh, almost 20 years, but I spent a couple of years there way back when. So um, I like that. Well, let's talk about some of the the real estate you d- deals you've done, or at least one of them. So, if you would please pick your first or your favorite, and, and let's talk a little bit about it. Well, I'll give you like a minute journey. Uh, I've always done real estate as an as an appetizer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so twenty thirty years ago, always just bought things here and there, and and have never lost money in real estate, mm-hmm. um, even as a as a side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought. Three years ago, I after writing the book and really I'm following the Ten Commandments, trying to figure out which asset class that I want to invest in, and obviously decided real estate, in particular multifamily. I started uh, three years ago to look at multifamily passively, and since mm-hmm. done ten investments passively, they all did well. Uh, and I looked at how they structured the deals, how to get the deals. And I said, hey, I could probably learn this pretty quickly myself. And uh, started to I've done about ten GP of so GP equal GP deals, um, as small as half a million to as big mm-hmm. as twenty three million. Okay. And so, uh, the first syndication, which I think you're in, Brian, I closed. It was a seventy six store last February in Clearwater, mm-hmm. Tampa. At the time, I had about one million assets under management in multifamily. Mm-hmm. As of today, we're uh, north of sixty five million. In terms of the active side, we, we own more on the passive side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, and, uh, the majority of these are, are in Tampa, mm-hmm. where I am today. And it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And, yeah, it is a lot of fun. We're looking to scale this up. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what what do you like about Tampa? I mean, everything, right? Mm-hmm. The macro makes sense. Uh, the The taxes, the landlord, the growth, the net mm-hmm. migration, the diversity of jobs. The relative affordability to other parts of the of the market, despite obviously having a minimum quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, it's still cash flows. Yeah. Unlike in New York and Austin, it doesn't cash flow. Mm-hmm. It's still cash flows. I, I like projects that cash flow. Obviously, it's 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 nice place to be. I, I'm in St. Pete today, as I have been, so I enjoy coming here. Yeah. I, life's too short. I, I don't want to be in a place where I'm making a lot of money, but I don't enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. So, and that's definitely that's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I started investing in Columbia, South Carolina because we enjoyed going there. You know, my my wife grew up there and so we were going there a lot anyway. And so that that was part of my philosophy of investing in, in, in the Carolinas was we go there a lot, we vacation there, we spend a lot of time there anyway. 
may as well make that part of our business. And you mentioned that with with Tampa and St. Petersburg, you know, it's they're they're great areas and there's a lot of good things to do while you're there. So you might as well enjoy it. Yeah. I like that. Like yeah. That yeah. Life's too short, right? Yeah. Life is short. Yeah. You might, might, might as well enjoy it. So I love it. I love it. So last question for you, and then we'll, we'll bring Joseph on. So what's next? What's next is, mm-hmm. in a sense, 65X in about 15 months, right? A million mm-hmm. last February to about 65 now. Our deals have perform much better than most of our forecasts in the mm-hmm. financials. And so, so, and again, we're having a great time. Mm-hmm. So right now, as we speak, we made four hires today. I, I just recently brought on board a full-time CFO, COO, Tony, nice. who joined us about three weeks ago. And we are scaling up massively to 15X between mm-hmm. now and 2025. So 15X from 65 million would get us to about a billion. Mm-hmm. A billion by 2025. So you started, how long ago did you start? Last February was our first, last February I was doing, we were at 1 million AUM. So roughly 18 months ago in 2025. So basically you're trying to get to a billion in in roughly four years. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Got a number of strategies. Uh, Mm -hmm. A a second fund is in the works. Mm Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of joint ventures with a group that has 5,000 doors mm-hmm. so that we can tackle larger deals. We are looking to acquire a property management company mm-hmm. to help us uh, grow in Florida because the PM side, AM side is difficult. So, yeah. so, so all those will be in play this, this year. And so we can grow. Again, we did, we, did six, we did 65 times in 18 months. I'm pretty sure we can do 13 times, 15 times in, uh, yeah. in four years. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like a great goal. I love it. And sounds like you're, you're setting up the framework right now, getting all the right people in place and getting ready to just hit that scale button and go. Yeah. And, and meeting folks like yourself, Brian mm-hmm. and Joseph, I'm sure we'll find a way in the next year or two to, to do more, to do some deals together. Right? Love it. I love that. All right. Well, speaking of Joseph, you know, Joseph, you've been waiting patiently for a little bit right now. So now it's your turn. So welcome and uh, do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Joseph Harris III. I'm originally from Virginia. I now live in Wilmington, North Carolina. Just starting my multifamily journey. I've been studying real estate hardcore now for probably about two years. Mm-hmm. I got a background in wholesaling houses, but I wanted to switch over to multifamily because mm-hmm. it's much more lucrative. And I've always been attracted to apartments. And I like mixed-use developments. So I actually want to learn about real estate development later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Developments. I actually just recorded a podcast episode with somebody who's specialized in developments and he made a really, really strong case for it. I think it's the ultimate value add. You know, as long as it's multifamily, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. But, yeah, I agree. It was an actual report. I actually posted it on LinkedIn. I don't know if you saw it in that, but mm-hmm. there was a report that came out on, in Marcus and Miller chap that said mm-hmm. that real estate development had, is at all time highs right now. Mm-hmm. The past couple of years since since after the pandemic, but even though a lot of development projects are going on, they still can't meet the demand for multifamily units. Yeah, it's not enough multifamily units countrywide as as, as a nation as a whole. 
So yeah, it's definitely room for development. That makes uh, investing in apartments good for whether you're buying existing or developing. You know, if there's that supply and demand imbalance, prices are going to go up, rents are going to go up. So that that bodes well for both sides of the fence, as I see it. Exactly. All right. Well, Joseph, so let's let's talk about a little bit about, you know, your motivation. You know, what's what's the reason you're doing this? What's your big burning why? So my big burning why is my family. So that's probably the most important reason would be my family. Other than the money, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody like the money. So if the money not there, it's not going to attract nobody. Yeah. But other than the money, you got to have a why because you're not going, you will get lazy after you get a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. So, but my wife, my wife and my kids, because mm-hmm. so, I got seven kids total and mm-hmm. I got four school aged children at home. So they depending yeah. on their daddy. Yeah. Oh, I understand that. I've got, I don't have seven yet, but, uh, um, I don't think I'll ever have seven. We got five, uh, three of them at home. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand that, you know, you got to keep, uh, you know, keep the, the kids fed and clothed and I mean, that that's huge right there. Um, right. so well, cool. Well, Hey Joseph, we got Sam on the line here. What do you want to ask him? I got about four questions that I wrote down since you've been talking. One of the things that I want to ask you is, what are some tips that you can give me for raising capital for a deal? Mm-hmm. And um, and I'll let you answer the question, and I'll dig further into that. All right. Hey, Joseph, you got to promise you one thing, though, okay, brother? Seven kids. you got to teach me how to parent seven kids at some point. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> whatever, whatever I've done or will do is not mm-hmm. masterminding seven kids. So kudos to you, too. Yeah. To, I mean, I, I thought I had to talk with three kids, right? Respect, man. Fundraising, to me, on the, certainly the equity side for multi, Joseph uh, Bryant, had not been as difficult as I anticipated. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is in the past two, three years, multifamily has been hot. But mm-hmm. even now, you know, we're, we closed a deal early this year. I'm closing a deal this month. The equity piece actually has been fairly good. We're often oversubscribed. A lot of it's because we put in a lot of our own money. Mm-hmm. Right? So okay. deals we put in, uh, we put in uh, low six, six figures, sometimes seven figures into a deal. And I think I'm not the smartest kid in the block, but I think investors and friends know that I'm not dumb. So mm-hmm. if I put in a large amount of money and often we take the common, we don't take the prep. So we're last in line to get paid. Uh, a lot of times it signals to mm-hmm. investors that we've done our homework, we're putting our skin in the game. And so we're able to attract good investors. Not everybody can do that. It's just that mm-hmm. when, if I raise money, if I decided to raise money, we don't always do. I want to be sure to signal to my investor partners that we have deep, deep skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And we'll be the last to get paid if the project goes wrong. Yeah. So I think to me, that's been our biggest success factor. Other than that, you know, uh, as we talked earlier, Joseph, we were picking the right asset class. Multifamily truly is a great asset class. We picked not only Tampa and Florida, we picked certain sub-markets within Tampa that are better than Tampa mm-hmm. overall. Okay. Right? And then we, we, don't, we don't overpay for the assets. So when you just kind of put all those slices together and you can, actually can't close a project, 
I think the equity piece becomes easier. I tend to agree, you know, when you're talking with other people, a lot of it is you have to put yourself out there and you have to start talking about it first. When you look at what gives investors confidence, I remember on the first capital raise I did, the thing that I think was the biggest selling point for a lot of people and maybe brought them on onto our side of the fence was the fact that I was also investing into the deal. And I do try to put skin in the game in every single deal that I'm in so that I can come with that that position. I think it puts you in a much better position asking for people to invest if you're investing yourself. I would actually rephrase what I just said. And instead of asking people to invest, you're know, giving people an investment opportunity. You're giving them an opportunity to invest their capital alongside yours. And I think that's absolutely huge. And probably one of the best keys is make sure you have skin in the game. And another thing that he mentioned that I'll, I'll bring out is make sure that you prioritize the investors over yourself and they'll see that. I love that. I think everything you said, I agree with Brian. I think the, I don't see it as begging for money or asking for money. I see it as, listen, if I underwrite a hundred deals and get two under contract, and I'm going to put in a quarter million to a million of my own money into it, I'm actually doing, not to sound arrogant, but allowing other partners to come in to co-invest with us. It's an opportunity. It's almost like it's a partnership. It's not one way. It's mutual. Yeah. yeah we're not asking for a donation. So I think a lot of people at the beginning Dude, we're asking people to co-invest and it's, you know, I've got my money in this deal and yeah, it's a numbers thing. So if you looked at a hundred deals, put in two offers and you finally get, you know, one opportunity, I think there's value there too, because you can just talk to your investors and say, Hey, look, I do everything I can to look as many of these deals as possible. And this is definitely, you know, the top 1%. And I believe in it so much that I'm putting X amount of dollars into it. So Joseph, does that answer your question? You got, you got more, more follow-up on that one. Well, it does answer my question. It's a very good answer, mm-hmm. saying. So I, I appreciate you for giving me that answer because I have heard other investors say that they want, at minimum, they want the sponsorship team have about 10% of mm-hmm. the investment capital in the deal, yep. 10% or more. So they definitely look at that. What if you just don't have it? Say you found mm-hmm. a deal. Maybe you can get partners that come in with you, but you know you yourself don't have it. Mm-hmm. But you still need to raise capital for the deal. Because that's the actually that's the position that I'm in right now. I don't actually have the money to put in put in the yeah. deal right now. I'll, I'll go first on that one. That's a great question. And a lot of people put themselves, I mean, a lot of people are in that situation on their first deal. You know, so as far as skin in the game, you know, how do you have skin in the game is is another way to look at it. You can absolutely borrow your partner's credibility. If you're not putting money in the deal yourself, the fact that the general partnership has 10% of the common equity or 10% of the, the equity involved is something that you should be able to point to and say, hey, look, I don't, I don't have my personal money in this, but as a general partnership, we have 10% of the equity. Now, something else to point out is is most syndications come with acquisition fees. If you're getting a a portion of the general partnership, you're going to be sharing in the acquisition fee. One way to be able to say you have your skin in the game is to take that acquisition fee and put that acquisition fee into the deal as equity. So now instead of getting a $10,000 or a $20,000 check at closing, you put that money into the deal and now you do have equity. You can talk about that. And I, you know, make sure you're not misleading anybody, but that is one way that you can have skin in the game. And, you know, maybe maybe you're not investing, you know, the $50,000 minimum, but if you can put 10 or 20,000 in, I, I think that's going to go a long way to help. Thank you, Brian. 
Let me just give you a live example mm-hmm. to illustrate, I think, more or less what Brian just said, Joseph. Okay. So we're closing this month our smallest tamper deal, but to me, our most important tamper deal is a $2.2 million multi, 12 units on a large 15,000 square foot of land uh, in downtown St. Pete. This deal is my daughter's deal. My daughter started at 17 to learn the business and to underwrite. Uh, We made a number of bids. We didn't win. Uh, This past May, we spent the entire month of May in Tampa looking at a bunch of deals. She did. uh, I drove her around. She doesn't have a license yet. And we looked at a lot of deals and she underwrote a bunch and she picked this one. Mm -hmm. She has no money, but she rounded up myself, her mom, and a partner, Cindy, in Tampa. So there's three other partners. And that and we will be put, the three partners, not her, she's the fourth partner, will be at least 60, 70% of the equity because we like this deal. And then she is in charge of underwriting and raising equity from friends and family. Mm-hmm. She's doing that. Exactly as Brian said, for the work that she's done in identifying and securing and underwriting the deal, she will get a piece of the acquisition fee and she'll get a piece of the carry interest mm-hmm. that equals about $100,000. And the reason for that is she's starting college tomorrow. She just literally flew to Chicago yesterday to start freshman year tomorrow. And when we exit or refi out of this deal, 100000 of the profits from this deal will go to pay her pay for her first year of college, plus whatever party money or yeah. <laughs> spending money she needs. Yeah, it's going to be so really she expensive started with, school for 100000 yeah. to only pay for it, first it, year. It, well, yeah, it's eighty five plus whatever incidentals. But yeah. she... She will do another deal next summer mm-hmm. without money, but she will do the work, Joseph, right? So mm-hmm. it's really no different. It's pretty much what Brian said. Let's say you found a great deal. You do all the work and you invited Brian to be your partner because you did the work. You know, you don't have to put it all the capital. You put a small amount relative to Brian and you can mm-hmm. argue for a piece, a piece of acquisition fee as well as the carry interest. Exactly. like what my daughter's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was a good example. example. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joseph, you got no, you got more questions? Yeah. I, my next question, it seems like there's a lot of syndicators and a lot of deals out there in an industry with a lot of competition, especially it's like certain markets, like the Sunbelt area. A lot of people concentrating in Texas, in Florida, and in Georgia. Those seem like the three main states everybody's focusing on. How do you stay relevant and stay competitive so you don't get left behind? I think it does matter to pick the right markets, but I think a good GP can make money in any market. And the question is, how do you stay relevant? Uh, The question is really, what is your superpower? You're right. There's a lot of syndicate out there. But if you're the best underwriter, that's fantastic. You You can offer your services underwriter. If you're really good at getting loans and you got relationships with lenders, that is a superpower. That's an immense superpower. That's one of my kryptonite, my areas. I, I'm not very good at getting loans. I always get bad loans. <laughs> or, or, or it takes me longer than I like to get loans. <laughs> my equity is better than my debt. But maybe you're a good asset manager. Or maybe, for like right now, I'm positioning myself as the Tampa guy. I'm closing my seventh deal since February last year in Tampa. People know me as a Tampa guy. The brokers know me. The banks know me now. It's a team sport. 
right? So you just got to figure out what you don't like to do, maybe you're weak at, but more importantly, what is the area that you can add value, for example, to me or to Brian? I definitely agree with that. You know, it's you specialize. This is a, a game where specialization and niching down is going to pay a lot of dividends. And if if you want to be the Tampa guy, I mean, brokers, let me just kind of rephrase something. He said he he wants to be the Tampa guy or he is the Tampa guy. If you're going to a different metro every time you look at a deal, the broker is never going to look at you as a Tampa guy. You're never going to create a deep enough relationship to be able to get, you know, knee or waist deep into a metro like Tampa. You know, you're, you're probably never going to get deep enough into an area to to create a relationship enough to where the broker pick up, picks up the phone and calls you. So I think there's right. a certain amount of specialization that you have to do to be able to, to do well in this industry, especially starting out. You know, starting out, you have to have, there has to be a value equation or a value proposition in a partnership. And specializing, getting really, really good at one thing is, is a really, really solid way of getting there. I mean, just examples of friends that are, have addressed that question. Joseph, uh, I know somebody who was a professional interior designer, and she's part of my multifamily group. Mm-hmm. That's all she does is she's, she pitches herself as the late GP that comes in to transform properties using her interior design. And, and she gets invited for that because she, she's able to generate extra value from that. Fundraising, if you're not a fundraise, I know a guy that he was invited to a $130 million deal is a Chinese Canadian and he has access to Chinese money. Uh, mm. I know somebody from Tennessee who uh, I think was a priest or a father and, and essentially raised his money from the, the, the church mm-hmm. relationships. Okay. So there are different affinity groups, right? I, I know a couple of NFL players retire, I've done some deals with them that they've raised money from athletes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Affinity group. But you could be an asset manager, you could be, you know, you could just all these things you can do because again, it's a team sport. If you're going to be buying a ten hundred million dollar building, there's a lot of things to do. Thank you for that, Clan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's another excellent answer. Yeah. yeah. That, that definitely answered my question. Well, Joseph, you got any more questions? Now, this is about due diligence, the next one. During the due diligence process, I know you do physical due diligence and you got financial due diligence. What are some key things that you look for while doing physical due diligence or financial due diligence? I'll, I'll take I'll take it first. You know, so in a nutshell, what I would say is you know, the first thing you're looking for is to validate, validate everything you do. You're going to make a lot of assumptions during your underwriting that you're not able mm-hmm. to pin a value on, or you're not able to, you're making guesses, you know, and you're doing everything you can to make these guesses as accurate as possible, but you want to basically validate all of your assumptions, you know? So if you made an assumption that the rent roll is correct, for example, and there's they're at 90% occupancy, you want to validate that. Anybody can, fa- you know, can type in things on their property management software and make it look like there's 90% occupancy, right? But I would say the the overall broad brushstroke, what you're doing on due diligence is you're validating every assumption that you made in your underwriting and in putting the deal together. And then I would say the second thing you're doing is you're looking for areas that could be potential problems. So, you know, if I had to dumb it down to two things, you're validating all your assumptions and you're looking for potential problems. Great answer. I'm not sure I have much to add to that. Joseph, uh, this is not an area that I'm strong in. So mm-hmm. when okay. I'm doing projects, I, I yeah. just bring partners or friends that know me better than I do 
yeah. whether it's a property manager to to help me make sure that the the diligence is correct. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think that's even where I'm at, I've done due diligence on I think 12 properties now. That is still a key. I am still not an expert at sewer lines. I'm still not an expert at foundations, carpentry, you know, engineering, all that other stuff. I think end of the day, you, when you're doing due diligence, you know, make sure you have that team of people with you that are the experts. Gotcha. Thank you, Brian. So, all right. Joseph, you got any other questions on there? We were coming close to the end of time. We probably have time for yeah. one more if you got one more. Yep, I got one more. Awesome. So that was perfect because I have four questions. <laughs> so, what, what are some red flags you have came across when doing due diligence on the property? Do you want me to take this one or you want this one? Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Red flags. There there were a lot of red flags, I, I think, after, you know, that we, we found that we, we should have. Okay. One, one deal, a lot of red flags on this deal. We ended up dropping this one out of contract. It was a $2 million purchase price. It was a 40 unit. And this was this was 2018 timeframe. You get into some of the units. I mean, you look at the back of the building and there was some major settling. You know, there were inch wide gaps in the bricks in some places because the property had settled. And you get into some of the units and there were a couple of units where, I mean, the, there's a definite spot in the floor where, where things change directions. You know, you put a pencil mm-hmm. on one side and I mean, you, you like the continental divide going through a couple of the units. You put a, a marble or a ball down, it rolls one way on the other side of this line, it goes the other way. That's a foundation issue, right? It was a, fa- it was a set- yeah, settling issue and a foundation issue. And, you know, when you look at the overall purchase price, I, I want to say it was a 1.8, maybe a $1.9 million purchase price on a 40 unit. And when, when we saw that, that gave us, you know, a lot of concern going into this, you know, and we were probably at the time, we were probably on the high end of what we should have paid for that property. But that was one of the big red, red flags. Basically for us is we realized that, it was more than we could handle. It would have been our third acquisition. And at the time, it was more than we could handle. You know, there's probably a lot of experienced people who could look at that and say, yep, no problem. I know how to deal with this. But, mm-hmm. but for us, like I said, I think that was the key is it was more than we knew how to handle. It was more than we were comfortable handling. And I think that's that's what you're looking for. That, those are the red flags you're looking for, things that are more than you can handle. Gotcha. Thank you, Brian. All right. San, anything to add to that? No, I think that's perfect. Right. I think Joseph asked some great questions. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, we're going to wrap things up. So thank you to both of you for coming on today. A lot of value added. Very, very great conversations. And appreciate your time today. Last questions for each of you. And, and San, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? So we're in most social media. Uh, our website is probably the best place. And it's just Sky Tian Capital. Mm-hmm. Sky, S-K-Y, Tian, just means Sky in Chinese. Sky Tian, T-I-N, Capital.com. We publish regularly with about 12,000 subs now, uh, investment content, educational content mm-hmm. from the book, as well as our own deals. And occasionally we may send some investment opportunities or partnership opportunities. So just you know, if you're interested, you can just follow us uh, or subscribe to our newsletter. All right. And is that subscription on that SkyTN website? Yeah, it'll pop up. To Perfect. Just send an email Perfect. All right. And Joseph, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? 
Well, I haven't set up my website yet, but I'm definitely going to set that up real soon. To contact me probably right now, the best way would be LinkedIn, my LinkedIn mm-hmm. profile. Search for my name on LinkedIn, Joseph Harris III, and my profile will come up. Or right. you can just call my cell phone, call or text me, because I'm always looking to network with anybody out there. So I'm mm-hmm. looking to, I need to build me a team because I don't have a, an official team yet. My number is area code 910-789-2190. Two one nine. All right. So we'll have that in the show notes for anybody who wants to reach out to him, LinkedIn profile and, and your cell phone number. Once again, guys, I appreciate you coming on the show today and hope you guys have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Brian. guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.